0: It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Well, we've been walking through, uh, talking about this idea of idolatry, and eventually we'll get into this idea of altars and adultery and all that kind of stuff. And uh, last time, we were talking about this idea of idolatry and kind of giving a broad view If you will, of what does the Old Testament say about idolatry? Uh, Isn't it interesting that idolatry, and for whatever reason, I never picked up on this, but idolatry is such a huge issue in Scripture. I mean, I I know it was there because, you know, you see the people of God having to deal with idolatry. And and of course, I know that the pagan people of the world uh, throughout history have always dealt with idolatry. But for whatever reason, I never realized. What a serious issue this is in Scripture and how much God talks about it throughout His Word. Uh, last time, I was kind of giving some definitions just so that we could have something to work with in terms of a definition of idolatry. And let me just read three of the quotes that I read last time uh, just to, I guess, prime the pump, if you will, this morning. Uh, again, Brad Bigney from Gospel Treason writes this, He says, an idol is anything or anyone that captures our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. So what could be an idol in your life? Anything. Uh, Norm Wakefield says this, he says, whenever someone looks to anything or anyone other than God as a source of all things, he commits the sin of idolatry. So here then is a good definition of idolatry. Looking to any person, object, or idea to supply what only God can supply. And then John Juman says this. He says, Idolatry is the opposite of love, for it is the attempt to get what we want from someone or something. Idolatry is really above about the motive and intent of the heart to look to someone or something else besides Jesus to meet my needs. And then this is how he summarizes it. He says, Idolatry is looking to anyone or anything else besides Jesus to meet my needs. And I'm, I'm still trying to form a good definition, a, a good summary statement. But I really like this one, and so I, I may just borrow it because uh, I just I I like I like the phrase. So maybe perhaps simply, it's just this. Again, this is just the summary of, of John Juman. But he says, looking idolatry is looking to anyone or anything besides Jesus to meet my needs. And I don't know if you realize, but we all have this tendency. We we all have this tendency to give God our head nod and be like, yes, I'm all in for Jesus. But then we either add something to Jesus in our life, or we start to say, well, I've got Jesus, but I also need this over here to actually meet my needs. Uh, yeah, I have Jesus, but I, I really need money, or I really need entertainment, or I really need my, my private time, my, you know, like just the me time, or I need comfort, or I need air conditioning, or I need a relationship, or, or a specific relationship, Or I need drugs, or I need sex, or I need... And we we create this elaborate system of Jesus plus something because what we're actually saying is Jesus is insufficient to meet my needs. And I know we would never actually say that out loud because that sounds very unspiritual. And we know that Jesus can meet all of our needs. And yet, isn't it sad how often we go to other things besides Jesus to actually meet our needs? Uh, as you look at the course of Scripture, uh, last time we just kind of dabbled a little bit in the Old Testament. When you look at the early church, I find it fascinating that the early church was constantly coming up against this issue of idolatry. And again, part of the reason is the culture in which the early church was set, but do you realize the early church was constantly having to navigate this issue of idolatry? And so let me just give you a quick quote of this Greco-Roman culture and society that the early church found themselves in. And I want you to hear this idea of the the difficulty, if you will, of having to wrestle with this topic in an ancient world. So here's what one of the scholars says in terms of a summary. Uh, This comes from a Bible dictionary. But they write, because of the prevalence of idolatry in the Greco-Roman world, by the way, Greco-Roman world means that combination of the Greek and Roman. In other words, you have Alexander the Great in the, the, those few hundred years before Christ coming in and taking over the known world, uh, Hellenizing, which is the word to like make everything Greek, Hellenizing the world, and of course propagating the Greek culture, Greek language, Greek gods, and all that kind of stuff. And then when Rome comes in, they kind of leverage what Alexander and and the Greek Hellenization has done, and they piggyback, if you will. So they replaced a lot of the Greek culture with Roman culture, but yet at the same time, you still have all this Greek influence, but now you're mixing it with the Roman influence. This is Greek-Roman, which we call the Greco-Roman. So because of the prevalence of idolatry in the Greco-Roman world, the New Testament characterizes idolatry as the epitome of what it means to be a non-Christian Isn't that interesting? That one of the key ways to identify a non-believer is that that they're wrapped up in idolatry. So how do you clearly distinguish between Christians and and non-Christians? Idolatry. Uh, The author goes on to say, in the Greco-Roman world, every city had a patron deity. The city worshipped this deity by creating a shrine or an idol and religion for it. Cities usually had a temple that housed a life-size or larger idol of the patron deity. But unlike Israel's temple, the Greco-Roman temples were sites not for worship of the deity, but for special celebrations and the presentation of offerings. Most people worship the deities in their homes or at roadside shrines. And as a result, idol worship in the Greco-Roman world was everywhere. It's interesting. Could you imagine? Here's the early church, started in Jerusalem— And of course, Jesus says, I I want you to go to Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And so what you see the early church doing is, you know, they're in Jerusalem, and they start to evangelize to Judea, and then they're pressed into Samaria. And it's not very long before persecution arises, and they are now scattered abroad. And of course, you could look at persecution as a negative, but that was so amazing. Because had there not been persecution— the church probably would not have gone out in the reaches that it did so quick. It would have gotten there eventually. But this wasn't a holy huddle staying in Jerusalem because of the pressures and the intensity. They all just, they went out to the world. And the brilliancy of God in that is that it allowed the message of truth, the gospel, to be declared around the world. Here's the problem. Everywhere the gospel was being preached was full of a culture surrounded by a culture of idolatry. And so here is this message of Christ talking about freedom and salvation and life, and yet that is being proclaimed right in the middle of hostile territory, right in the middle of a culture that is obsessed with and surrounded by idolatry. And you could look at that and say, well, that must have been pretty difficult. But folks, things haven't changed very much. Guess what we have the opportunity to do? Take that same message, that same gospel, that same Jesus in the midst of the culture of which we are surrounded by, which is a culture of idolatry, and proclaim the hope of good news. There was such a challenge. You start to pick this up all throughout the book of Acts and, and the, the epistles, but it seemed like the, <clears throat> the early church kept running into this issue of, here are these people who were so wrapped up in idolatry who were coming to Christ, and then what do we, what do, we do with them? Because they should lay down their idols, and what you see is this struggle in some of the early churches, like Corinth, who are, yes, I'm a believer, and they're doing the Christian stuff over here, and yet they are still having a mess in their life with the prostitutes and the idolatry and all the stuff that the culture was worshiping here. And so you start hearing this language starting to come out saying, um... Yeah, that's, that's not a Christian. Christians are those who have separated themselves from the world of idolatry. Christians are those who are not participating in this culture. And so even though it has become the norm, quote-unquote, of culture, that doesn't mean it's supposed to be norm in our lives. And this is still true today. Now, we don't call, I think I mentioned this last time, we don't call the idols that we worship idols. Uh, we don't go down to a temple and worship, and offer sacrifices. I mean, we do. We have these big stadiums, right, where you deck yourself up in certain kind of clothing, and you have chants, and you give worship. Have you ever watched a sporting event? They are, it's temples of worship. It's really hard to get around that, because the same things that the tribal people would do of worshiping their gods, where they would paint their faces, wear certain clothes, sing special songs, have certain chants, offer certain sacrifices, scream and yell when things are going bad, hoot and holler when things are going well. I mean, that is American football. I mean, that is the NBA. That is badminton. Just <laughs> Supposedly there is a professional level of that. I have never watched it. Uh, we, we as a culture, we, we don't go worship at an idol, but we will sit for hours binge-watching something on a screen. We don't offer child sacrifices, but we are all about the convenience and the pampering of our own free will in our culture, and it's all about pro-choice. And we're offering our children, again, on the altar of Moloch. We, we actually have the exact same issues as these cultures. We just hide them differently. Or we call them something differently. But look at what the early church began to do. They started realizing here are all these people who are coming to Christ. Praise the Lord. But we need to give some definition of, okay, what are you called to? If you go to Acts chapter 15, there's an interesting scenario where you have a whole group of Jews who are arguing that if you're going to become a Christian, well, you've got to become a Jew. And reason, that does make sense at some level. If you, if you put yourself on their shoes. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it makes sense in, in their culture. Because Christianity up to this point has merely been a sect of the, of the Jews. All the Christians were Jews. So now we have these Gentiles who are coming to Christ. What do you do with a Gentile? Well, in the old covenant, you became a Jew. So all right, so we, we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He is God himself. You should become a Jew. And so there's this whole group of Jews who were propagating the idea that, all right, you had you to keep the feast, you had to be circumcised, you had to go through the rituals, and, and they had the list. And the early church got together and was like, well, no, that's, that's actually not, that's not what God is doing. We're not creating a Jewish thing. We're creating a Jesus thing. And so they got together, and they started arguing, and they, they were wrestling through this and obviously led by the Holy Spirit, they came to a conclusion, what does a Gentile have to do to be saved? Like, like what are they going to have to give up? What, like, do they have to become a Jew? Do they not have to become a Jew? Because there's this confusion in, in the church. And so, in Acts chapter 15, the apostles come to a conclusion. They say, uh, I think this is James speaking, but he says, therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. In other words, we're not going to trouble them by making them become a Jew. He says, but we will write to them, now get this, that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, from fornication, and from what is strangled, and from blood. They said, hey, that, that's what we're going to put upon them. So what is, the, what is the Gentile requirement to be a Christian? You don't have to be a Jew. You don't have to keep the festivals. This is really important for our day, by the way, because we have a whole group of people who are sliding back into if you're really going to be a Christian, you got to go back in to the old covenant stuff. And there's nothing wrong with the old covenant, but folks, we're not under the, coven- the old covenant. We're under Jesus, which doesn't throw out the old covenant, it raises it to a whole nother level. That was a side note. But they said, look, you don't have to become a Jew, you don't have to keep circumcision. So be circumcised, don't be circumcised. We don't care, they said. Hey, keep the festivals, don't keep the festivals. That, that's not the issue. What's the issue? Do you realize what they're listing is all about an exclusive devotion to Christ? And, and I'm not, I'm not going to spend the time diving into each of these aspects, but, but I want you to look at two of them in particular. They say things contaminated by idols and from fornication. Uh, a few verses later, they, they actually write out the letter that they're going to send with some of the disciples to these different churches. And this is what they actually say in the letter. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you. So this is according to the Holy Spirit. And they've, they've agreed with the Holy Spirit, which is, by the way, that's, you should do that. <laughs> you know? But it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. So here's what we're going to ask you to do. Abstain from things sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. For if you keep yourselves free from these things, you will do well. Farewell. Amen. So they say, okay, here's what I want you to do. We want you to give up your idols, and we want you to give up fornication. And it's interesting to me, if you start tracing the idea of idolatry through the New Testament... It is often associated with the fornication. Uh, the word fornication is the word porneia, uh, which is where we get the word pornography, porn, porneia. Uh, and some translations say sexual immorality, which is a decent translation. Some say fornication, which none of us understand what that actually is. Uh, so translation is a little difficult. But, but here's, here's probably the easiest uh, way to translate the word porneia anything outside of what God says for sexuality. Well, what does God say? It's one man, one woman in covenant marriage. Anything outside of that falls under this category. Well, that just kicks our culture in the teeth, doesn't it? Well, guys will be guys. No, they won't. Not under Christ. Do you, do you realize I was talking to Dan, and don't, don't quote the, the statistics, you know, 87 percent of statistics are, statistics are made up on the spot anyway. But if I remember correctly, Dan said that the latest statistics is that 60 I think it's 68 percent of American Christian pastors are addicted to pornography. Now if 68 percent of the pastors have looked at pornography within last month. Do you realize that is infiltrating their churches and the number within the churches are far higher? Here's the one that just just tore me up inside. On Christian college campuses, when they did the recent study, I think it was 96 or 97% of the guys on Christian college campuses were addicted to pornography. And 94, I think it was 94% of the females were addicted or looking at pornography. I mean, this is such, this is this culture's issue. We are so wrapped up in sexuality and the twisted of sexuality and everything goes and you can choose and you can, you know, change your gender, change your sexuality, change, you just, your, it's your preference, your choice, whatever you want to do. Our culture has gotten so wrapped up in the fornication and not just in the pornography stuff, but in the, per, the promiscuity of everything goes. Everything's fine. Everything's okay. Just do what you want. Be happy. And it's sad that that mentality has seeped into the church. And most Christians would be like, well, no, yeah, yes, marriage is between a man and a woman. Bless the Lord. Amen. And we have that agreement, but yet you actually look at the internal reality and we're still messed up in the area of fornication, folks. Do you know how heartbreaking that is? So here's the early church, and they're looking at the modern landscape of their day, and they're saying, we have a culture that is addicted to idols and overcome by fornication. And here's what encourages me. If the gospel of Christ could enter into that culture, the Roman world, and turn the Roman world upside down, It could easily happen today. Do you realize how similar we are to the Roman culture? I don't know if you've ever looked at the parallels, but we are uncannily similar. They were a sports-obsessed culture. Everything revolved around the games. They were a sex-obsessed culture. Everything was available. Everything was allowed. Everything was permissible. You didn't have to go that far. Now, they didn't have devices, right? Like We could just pull it out of our pockets and have access to it. They didn't have quite that ease, but it was available on, on all the street corners and most of the big cities. Pornography was readily available, because it was just it was it was on the streets, it was on the signs, it was on the I mean the culture was was twisted. They they were so me centered. I mean, you start work working to the parallels, there's there's a lot of interesting similarities. And it encourages me, I mean that that's depressing, but what encourages me is the fact that if the disciples could enter into that culture and literally turn it on its head. There is no excuse for our culture today. I mean, there's no excuse for how, why we can't change this culture. The same God of yesteryear is the same God of today. But I want you to get the emphasis. Here's the early church, and they're looking at this world who's just obsessed with themselves. And they said, okay, we want you to come to Christ. But you're going to have to lay down idols. And you're going to have to give up fornication. And that sounds really nice. It sounds really spiritual, doesn't it? But do you realize how hard that must have been for the, for the early church? Because those two things defined culture. Those two things defined society. Society. And thought process. This is how they grew up. This was so ingrained. This was so a part of their nature and the addictions of their heart. How on earth is someone going to get out of that? The gospel, folks. Jesus. You should be smiling. That's good news. Do you know how phenomenal that is? Because you can look at today's culture and be like, well, okay, we don't call them idols, but we are wrapped up in idolatry. And you have to at least admit we're wrapped up in fornication. And by the way, fornication, we've often used that term in the church to refer to physical activities outside of marriage. Yes, it includes that, but it includes all other activities. Whether with someone, by yourself, in your mind, in your heart, physically, not physically, all of that is included in this concept all of that is not allowed in our lives. We are called to be pure. And we're not doing a very good job. And we are being strangled by a society of idolatry. I look at what Paul says about his culture and just human nature in Romans chapter 1. And I know there's a bigger context to this, but I just want to give you a little piece of this. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Do do you hear this? God stands against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. It is not to be in your life. We are called to be godly and righteous. So God is standing against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. I love what Paul says. He says not a single person has the excuse at the judgment seat of Christ to say, I didn't know, no clue. Because Paul says God has written it in everyone's hearts. It is written in the skies. All of creation is just declaring truth. So we know, whether you, whether you actually have had a clear understanding or not, you know deep down the truth. But he goes on, he says this. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they become futile in their speculations, and foolish, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So we have actually taken the God of the universe and said, and instead formed and crafted our own little images after everything in creation so that we may worship that rather than worship the creator himself. That is a great way to define our culture. It's a sad reality, but that is a great way. We have wrapped ourselves up in everything but Jesus. And we are looking to everything outside of Jesus to satisfy our needs. Aren't we? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? So, So you look at the temple of God, there should be no idolatry in the temple. In fact, when you go a few hundred years before Christ, you have the whole Maccabean revolt. And the whole Maccabean revolt happened because here you have these Roman oppressors coming in and the Hasmoneans and all this kind of stuff. And they literally set up an idol in the Holy of Holies. And they sacrificed a pig in the temple. And most of the Jews, the priests, were not along going, yes, sure, let's just do it. Because I get power, and I get prestige, and I get position. And you had this group called the Maccabees who rise up, and they're like, excuse me, this is the temple of Yahweh. This is not a temple of pigs. This is not a temple of idols. And they literally cause a revolt. And I love the fact that here's Paul picking up this idea going, um, you do realize that the temple of God should have nothing to do with idolatry. If there is like one place on the planet that has a sole dedication to the God of the universe, it should be the temple. Shouldn't it? I mean, that's rational. That that the God of the universe has at least one place on planet Earth where there is an exclusive, all-consuming devotion and love to him. Where is it? The temple. So Paul takes that concept and then he jams it down your throat. <laughs> because look at what he says. He says, what agreement, like what friendship has the temple of God with idols? And then he says, you, me, we are the temple of the living God. So pause right there. Do you, do you hear his, or his reasoning point? He's saying, when you go down to Jerusalem, the temple of God has an exclusive focus. There's an exclusive devotion. There is one purpose, one focus of the temple. What is it? God. And no idols better be there. And then in his cheeky way, Paul goes, you do realize that you are now that temple. That there should be one place in this universe. There should at least be one place on planet Earth that has an exclusive, overwhelming devotion to God without any distraction, without any idols? Where is it? You. So Paul says, so what friendship or what agreement has a temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell. It's this idea of tabernacle, I will tabernacle in them. I will dwell in them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, Paul writes, Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Do you hear what he says? You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God has promised us that he will dwell not just near us, but in us. Therefore, you are called to come out from this idolatrous culture. You are dear saint, are called to to be separate, holy, different, other than the world around you. Be cleansed from all this idolatry, whether it is physical or whether it's internal, mental, emotional, whatever it may be in your life, you are called to come out of that. And you are to have an exclusive, overwhelming passion and devotion for God Almighty. And Paul says, oh, If God has promised to dwell in us, if God has promised to be our all-sufficiency, should we not cleanse ourselves? Should we not throw and get rid of all the the idols? Or as as Hebrews says, should we not throw off all the sin that so easily entangles us and run this race? Paul says that we should cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. What should be our pursuit? What should be our grand desire in life? Walking in holiness. Becoming like him. Now, you don't become God. Praise the Lord. <laughs> but you get to share in his nature, as Second Peter 1, 3 and 4 says. That you get to share in the overwhelming reality of his life. So, if you get to share in his life, if he actually is going to tabernacle with you, why would you why would you invest yourself? Why, why would you get so entangled with the culture around you? It's lunacy when you think about it. And yet we are so strangely pulled into it. Uh, here's what uh, Jesus said, L- listen to this. He's, he's speaking to the, uh, the seven churches in Asia Minor. And I I want you to pick up this thread because he's he's referencing back to two Old Testament characters. But then he says the same exhortation. So to Pergamum, Jesus says in Revelation 2.14, but I have a few things against you because you, because, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So if you go back into the story of Balaam, what you actually see is uh, Balak hires Balaam to give a curse to the people of Israel. And Balaam says, oh, I would love to be able to do that for you because he's getting money. And so Balaam shows up and goes, all right, but you just got to realize I can only speak what God puts in my mouth. And so he goes up there and he's, oh, I got a great curse for you. Speaks, pff, speaks forth blessing, <laughs> which is awesome. And of course, Balak goes, "Um, I didn't pay you. To give them blessing, I'm paying you to curse them. And Balaam's, like, I'm, so, I'm so, I'm so sorry. Um, I'll go back and pray, and I'll come out. I got a good bless. I got, I got a good curse. I got, I'm, I'm ready for this. Goes praise, comes back. All right, here we go. You ready? <laughs> Speaks forth blessing. <laughs> it just cracks me up. After the third time, Balaam's like, seriously. And the story ends awkwardly. But what we actually later find out is that what Balaam told Balak is, look, God is not allowing me to curse them. But I'll tell you what you can do. If you get those people to intermarry with the people around them, say with your people, and you cause them to go after idols and sexual immorality, it's the same thing as if I curse them. And God's not allowing me to actually speak a curse on them, but I want your money. Here's how you can do it. So Jesus picks up on the story and says, oh, dear Pergamum, you have that same problem. Because you are eating things sacrificed to idols and committing acts of immorality. And then a few verses later, he's talking to Thyatira. And he says, but I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leads my bond servants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So again, Jesus is quoting this great story from the Old Testament, talking about Jezebel. And Jezebel was not just a bad woman. She was wicked. She was wicked, wicked. And Jesus says, do you know what you've actually done, Thyatira? You've actually allowed that same spirit or that same attitude to dwell among you. And what are you doing? Well, you're committing acts of immorality, sexuality, and you're giving yourself to idols. Isn't it interesting that Jesus is going after those two same things? The same two things that the Roman world has been wrapped up in. The same two things that the Egyptian culture was wrapped up in, and the Babylonian culture, and the Assyrian culture, and the Medes and the Persian culture, and the Greek culture, and the Roman culture and American culture. It's like those are two defining aspects of sinful humanity, of the culture itself. So no wonder the church kept saying, come out from all of that. You've got to lay it down. Yeah, but that's part of who I am. That's my identity. I know. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Your identity has been changed. So you don't have to keep going back and wallowing in the mud. You can actually live a brand new reality in Christ. No wonder Paul said those kind of things. Because he's talking to a culture that is so wrapped up in... They're just like, I, I, this is who I am. I can't get out of this. And Paul says, there's freedom. There is hope. Encourage us with those same words. There's hope. And it doesn't matter how much you've been strangled in those realities of idolatry of any kind or sexuality of any kind outside of covenant marriage. Do you realize there is hope? Because there's a Jesus who wants to save you from it. And the gospel is still powerful. And the same gospel that entered into that culture and turned it on its head is the same gospel that works today. And it doesn't matter what kind of darkness or what kind of sin that you are tinkering with. It doesn't matter if it's heterosexual sin or homosexual sin. It doesn't matter if it's turning to entertainment or being obsessed with sports or having drugs. Or It doesn't matter what the issue is in your life, the solution is still the same. Jesus and the power of the gospel. Uh, listen to what one author said on this idea of idolatry. The Bible used the picture of idolatry as a way of describing anything that takes the place of the true God in our, in our, in our lives. Not depictions of the Greek goddess of love, Aphrodite, but mental images of naked bodies. Not literal temples where we go to worship real statues, but idolatry is now the inner urges for more and more. Not stone altars to sacrifice on, but bragging about the money in the bank and the turnover of the market stall. It's all idolatry, putting something else in God's place. Later on, in, as the apostles were all kind of dying out, uh, you had the apostle John, and he's kind of looking back over the course, course of several decades, and he begins to write some encouragements. He writes the book of John and, of course, the book of Revelation. But in, his letter to first, in the letter of 1 John, I just want you to read or hear the very ending of 1 John. John says this in, in 1 John 5, verses 2 through 4. He's making this phenomenal argument of the fact that you don't have to live in sin. But he says, By this we know that we, we love the children of God, when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. They're not. For whatever is born of God, get this, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What is it? Our faith. Do you realize your faith actually has the potential of overcoming every sin that so easily entangles? Every addiction that has swallowed you up? And then he gets to the very end of of that chapter and he makes his final statement. He says, we know that we are of God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Do you hear that? John goes, look, I realize the world is under the authority and the power of the enemy. I get that. But we are of God. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God in eternal life. And then he tags on this really random, odd statement at the very end of the book. Little children, keep yourself, guard yourself from idols. Period. And you're like, okay. We have victory. We have triumph. We are in God. Woo! The world has nothing upon us. Oh, and keep yourself from idols. Why do you think John had to even write that? Because he's reminding his people who are reading this, yes, you are more than a conqueror. Yes, you have victory. Yes, you have triumph. You are in God. But you've got to keep yourself on idols. You've got to keep an exclusive relationship and focus of devotion. You've, you've just got to keep pressing it. And if you had a last word in a letter, that's a good one. And it seems out of place, yet strangely it's the thing that needs to be sounded the loudest. Keep yourself, guard yourself, protect, do everything possible to keep yourself from idolatry. Listen to what Peter says in First Peter chapter 4. He says, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. In other words, you are not to live for your own pleasure. You're to live for the will of God. And then he says this, for the time already is past. In other words, hey, you're you're past this. For the time is already past. Sorry, for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, Drinking parties and abominable idolatries. He's like that, yes, that may have been in your past, but it's well time that you keep it in your past. Hey, you are not to live like the Gentiles around you. You are not to live or have the same mentality as the world around you. Well, what what is that? What are what are they all wrapped up in? This is a great summary of our culture: sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Man, if that was true of his day, that is definitely true of our day. And Paul says, okay, I understand a lot of you were engrossed in all that stuff. You were just overwhelmed and you were sinking and just swallowing it all. But isn't it well time to keep that in the past and move into the new reality which is in Christ Jesus? And then he goes on and says this, in all of this, the world is surprised that you do not run with him into the same excess of dissipation, And so they malign you. They slander you. So the world is looking at you and the fact that you are not participating with them, that you do not look or behave like them, and so therefore they start to mock you and they start to align you and they start to just, they they push you around saying, who do you think you are? You think you're better than us? So they're slandering you because you're not participating. But Peter says, but they will give an account to him who was ready to judge the living and the dead. Get this. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached. Well, what purpose is that? To get you out of all that stuff. That you do not have to participate in the things of the world any longer. You do not have to keep living in the idolatry and the sensuality and the perversion of our culture. The gospel is sufficient, there is freedom. It's not just a great refrigerator statement that we memorize as kids, but when 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, look, the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You are a brand new creature or creation in Christ Jesus. That's literal, folks. It's not abstract. It's not, oh, I really hope that be true. Oh, one day in my life when I die, I'll be a new creature. He's not talking about the future. He's talking about right now in your life, you can walk in freedom and triumph. Right now in your life, the gospel is sufficient to free you from the chains of immorality and the chains of perversion and the chains of junk. It can free you from idolatry, it can free you from all the stuff that has so easily entangled our culture. There is hope. This is good news should tell your faces. This is phenomenal, folks. Do you realize this is the joy? This is the message we get to proclaim. Which is why we should be the happiest people on the planet. This is not some dour gospel that we're proclaiming. Oh, verily, don't you want Jesus? That's not the message. What is the message? You're dying. You're trapped. You are going to hell. In fact, you're living in hell now. And you're so estranged and being strangled by death itself. Don't you want freedom? There is hope. I can introduce you to him. Because he is your freedom, he is your life, he is your peace and your joy. And all that stuff that used to define you, what if it doesn't have to define you anymore? What if, ponder, what if you didn't have to be a recovering alcoholic? What if, you just al- what if you just weren't an alcoholic? Well, I'm a recovering pornographer. I'm just a recovering adulterer. What if God could actually change you so you are a brand new creature in Christ Jesus? And your identity was not in what you used to do. What if your identity was Jesus? By the way, we call these people Christians. Christians. Do you realize that the, the world cannot stop this message? Yes, it loves its darkness. But darkness has no authority, power, over the light. And you get to be a declaration, a missionary, proclaiming the wonderful reality of the good news wherever you're at. Whether it's a foreign field or in your family, this is the message we proclaim with our lips and with our lives. Look at what 1 Thessalonians 1.9 says. Paul is speaking. He says, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Wouldn't that be a phenomenal statement said about our culture today? Oh, do you know what I've heard about you? Woo! I have heard that you have turned to God from idols to serve a true and living God. Here's what that same author said to you. The question is not whether you have idols or not. The question is whether you recognize them. Idols are our biggest problems. We will never understand ourselves or God's grace to us unless we grasp how our hearts constantly create and worship idols. They are idol factories because they work around the clock making idols out of things God has given us. They become altars where we offer those idols our best energies and our deepest devotion and our highest trust. We are idolaters. We are substituting things for Jesus in our lives. Could we repent? Could we seek the face of the Lord? Could we humble ourselves? Could we throw off all of the idolatry and adultery in our lives? We live in a culture that is obsessed and surrounded by idols. But the people of God have always been surrounded by idols. Whether it was in the line of Canaan, in slavery in Egypt, back in the land of promise in captivity in Babylon, returning back to Israel, or come up to the modern day. we The people of God have always been surrounded by idolatry. And though you may be surrounded by idolatry, you are called not to participate in it. And idolatry is no longer an external thing. Idolatry is actually an internal thing. As Jesus expressed, the reality is your heart. And he's after your heart. So, Let me give the definition again. Idolatry is anyone or anything besides Jesus that you're using to meet your needs. Would it be possible for us to turn to him and to surrender afresh and realize that the gospel is sufficient? And wouldn't it be phenomenal if in our day what is said of us is that we have turned to God from our idols, to serve a true and living God. And that we're not just giving God lip service, we're actually living it with the totality of our life. And we have an exclusive, overwhelming, passionate devotion with our heart, our soul, and our strength to him and him alone. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we are desperate for this. I am desperate for this. Lord, it's true. It's like all of our hearts are idle factories. And they are just constantly looking for ways to replace you. To somehow look for something to meet our needs. To satisfy our longings. To give us pleasure and hope. When in reality, all of that can only come from you. God, forgive us for turning to anything but you. Lord, would you put your finger on anything and everything in our life that we are using as a substitute? And Lord, yes, we may live in a culture that is surrounded by idolatry. We have a culture that is obsessed with sexuality. But Lord, you have called us unto freedom and hope and joy that we can be more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, that we do not have to be pushed around by idolatry or sin any longer, and that the gospel of Christ Jesus is still sufficient To solve every problem of the human heart. Lord, could we not look for a substitute gospel? Could we not try to find a way to, well, yeah, let's just, let's just pamper it under the the term love, but not actually deal with the sin. Lord, don't don't let us seek to, to gloss over something and actually not deal with the heart problems. Lord, we want to be changed. We want to be transformed. And Lord, your promise is, is if we would come to you in humility, if, if we would turn to you and if we would delight ourselves in you and we would seek your face and we would throw off all the other stuff out of our lives, not only will we find you, but our lives can be radically transformed. Lord, don't, don't let the culture of today define the church. Lord, can we walk in such holiness and righteousness and purity and truth that it aggressively marches on into our world and begins to set the captives free and would turn this world upside down once again. God, we are in desperate, desperate need of you. I am in desperate, desperate need of you. But Lord, thank you that we do not have to be defined by our past, We do not have to be defined by our sin. That in you, old things have become new. That our identity can be changed and we can be new creatures, creations, in Christ Jesus. Lord, let us live in that reality to its fullness. And would you do something so overwhelming in us that it just takes the world by storm. It just mind-boggles the culture And Lord, would you give great boldness to us that as your people of God, we can march into a depraved and dark culture and proclaim truth and light that would set others free. But Lord, let us experience it first. We love you. We trust you. In your precious name we pray. Amen.